Kia ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tēnei. He konai i pirangi tēnei e pā ana ki ngā Sounds of Science. To celebrate summer in Aotearoa, we've put together a supercut of our favourite moments from recent episodes. Cue this up before you head off on a long drive or add it to your summer playlist. And for our Northern Hemisphere friends, maybe put it on as you cosy up with a cuppa. From cryptic species to sharks to seal reproduction, this supercut is packed to the brim with all the best bits from previous episodes. And if that's still not enough for you, each guest has a full-length episode well worth diving into the show archives for. First up is ecologist Jess Scrimger. Jess is one of the country's premier ecologists. She's worked with creatures big and small, and she is on a crusade to make us fall in love with the cryptic species of Aotearoa, the hard-to-see, hard-to-hear, or hard-to-find critters. We spoke to Jess for episode 18, a must-listen if you ask us. Here she is. I personally am on a bit of a crusade to bring these cryptic species up in profile so that if you can see the effort that goes into the things people care for, like kiwi, like kākāpō, and we could bring that to other species where people don't know they're there or they're hard to love, well, I'm here to tell you how lovable they are. And so my crusade is on. Begins now. So it begins. So let's start. What is a cryptic species? Okay. So a cryptic species is... Um, a species that is hard to find. So they're not very obvious and not a lot of people know about them. So there's a bit of mystery around them, I think. Uh, it's either, so for instance, pika pika bats, they're only found at nighttime, so they're not visible. And when they do fly around, they use no sound. So the way they navigate is with this echolocation in a hearing range that humans can't pick up without a device. And so you could wander around the bush all you like and never know that right above you is all this life, all this activity happening. Um, Or they're incredibly good at camouflaging themselves. So you could be in the bush going for a walk and not know that there is um, this really interesting bug sitting there or a frog or a lizard. Um, And so, yeah, so cryptic species, just hard to find um, and a bit of a challenge, really but just as important as kākāpō. Exactly. What What are your favourites of the cryptics? Do you have some? If I had to think about a favourite, it's the one that catches you by surprise, I think. So this is something that I really like about cryptic species. So if I go back to that snail, Wainuia clarki, it's the size of a 50-cent piece and it's brown. Like it's a, a devil of a thing to find in leaf litter you really have to work for it. And they hide from you and it sits there. But when they eventually decide to poke a head out, they're just this radiant purple colour that completely catches you by surprise. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that really connects you to it. Uh, and one of my other favourites that, <laughs> that has a similar effect talking about purple um, is, is the peripetus. Now, the peripetus... Mm. There's something that hides from you and you kind of stumble across them. And uh, so when I'm out there doing snail monitoring, occasionally, if you're lucky, you get this beautiful, looks like a worm, but it isn't. It's called, or its common name is called a velvet worm. 
But what's amazing about it is that it is unchanged for the last 500 million years. So it's not related to a worm. It's not related to an insect. It's somewhere in between. And they reckon it's going to be in the same clade as like tardigrades, which are the little water bears that, you know, are indestructible, can exist in space kind of thing. Um, but what I like about the Peripetus, one, when you find it, it's like a treasure that you found. But two, the surprise factor is that when it gets scared or it's trying to catch something, it spits the sticky substance at you, which catches you by surprise. So I think when it comes to choosing a favourite, it's really hard to. They've all got these amazing qualities, but I have a particular fondness for those that kind of catch you by surprise. The species we're chatting about next will hopefully not catch you by surprise this summer. Renowned shark expert Clinton Duffy joined us for episode 17. His episode has proven to be a favourite among listeners. Here, Clinton shares his niche shark knowledge along with some pretty incredible on-the-job stories. In the following clip, Clinton gives us a run-through of shark reproduction, which is so amazing and varied it could have come from a sci-fi writer's brain. Can we talk about shark reproduction? I understand it's extremely varied and sometimes not so kind. Can you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the simplest forms of shark reproduction involves egg laying. And that's a relatively small number of sharks lay eggs. Um, most of the skates lay eggs, um, but the stingrays and majority of sharks give birth to live young, things like dogfishes, which retain the eggs inside the female, and the eggs actually hatch inside the female, and then the young live off the yolk sac to uh, otherwise where they, they hatch out inside the uterus. The mother produces a, thing, a material called uterine milk, which the embryo drinks. And then in extreme cases, um, the females produce eggs, which the um, the, the developing embryos eat throughout um, their development. Uh, and in the mo at the very, very far end, end of that extreme, uh, the two largest embryos in the uterus eat all the siblings. So that in those species, uh, and it's a fairly small number, it's really mainly the, the grey nurse shark and the deep water nurse shark, female only gives birth to a maximum of two young at a time. And then, um, then you move up up the ladder to things like the um, the whaler sharks. They ha have a placenta, so the developing embryo has a placenta, just like a mammalian one. It's mm. derived from different tissues, um, but it's very very similar uh, to a mammalian placenta. Amazing. And and is it true that in great whites they need to swim away from the mother as soon as they come out? So um, it's thought in most species of sharks, the females. Stop um, feeding while they're giving birth, um, so they don't inadvertently eat their young. Females tend to return to the same to the area that they were born in to give birth, and then they and then they leave those areas as well. So um, those areas may become sort of you know, habitually used uh, nursery areas. Some sharks actually breed over a very large area, but many use uh, these habitual nursery areas that they return to um, every two or three years to give birth. And then, and then they leave them, and, and that provides an extra layer of protection for the developing young, so you don't have large adult sharks mooching around that may eat you. Next up, we have Jack Mace from episode 16. 
There aren't many jobs with us that Jack hasn't turned his hand to. Remote island ranger, species monitor, trapper, hunter, ranger trainer, systems designer, operations manager, you name it, Jack has probably done it. He's deeply passionate about conservation and has accumulated a lot of great stories. He has a particular love for the Chatham Islands and in the following clip, he gives us some examples of why. And, and what's something that you tell other people to blow their minds? What, what's the kind of thing that you tell people that aren't conservationists, maybe? So first is that on the Chatham Islands, people use daisies for firewood and for fence posts. So the largest tree on the island is called Akeaki in Te Reo Māori, um, or Hakapiri in Moriori. And it's actually a daisy. It's this incredible tree. So it grows up, gets blown over in a storm. It'll plunge back under the ground and pop up again with another trunk. And it'll grow about as big as a kanuka um, or a young Wellington bahutakawa. And so as a result, you can use it for firewood. You can use it for fence posts. But actually, it's a daisy. Amazing. And it's it's not threatened? No, it incredibly like tenacious. Well. The one problem they have on the Chathams is historically it was very, very heavily cleared. And so as a result, a lot of the forest is gone. But when you travel over there, you will see akiaki or hakapiti out in the paddocks and around the houses. And they love them over there. They're great trees. It's pretty cool. Can you tell us a bit about what you've told me before about the Chatham Islands and how um, how diverse the uh, the characteristics are over there? Oh, mate, the Chathams is just this amazing place. Like so much of our threatened species diversity is there. It's kind of like the Chathams is for New Zealand, what New Zealand is for the rest of the world. Everything's different. Everything's just kind of weird so not only have you got these tree-sized daisies but it's like all of the birds are just that little bit bigger probably the coolest or the most visible demonstration of this though is a bird called the pārea which we'd know as a kukupā or a kereru a wood pigeon so the chathams have their own endemic one that's only on the chathams um, almost went extinct as well in fact I think at one point it was down to about 45 birds left and these things are mega like the scientists will say they're 20% larger than a kereru but they look twice as big, and they sit on the ground. So these are like the native cows. They graze the grass, and there's one corner on the road in the south of the main Chatham Island where if you come around the corner, you have to slow down because on the other side of the corner, quite often there'll be a flock of these big pārea just sitting in the road and they waddle off slowly, (laughs) flap lazily over to graze on the grass. The other interesting fact is that New Zealand has the largest stinging nettle in the world. And when I say largest, again, this is the size of a tree, like the size of an apple tree. Probably every hunter in New Zealand will know this species from travelling around in the river valleys, um, but they're massive and they have these big, jagged needles. You think about a nettle, and you know they're covered in these little bristly hairs, but this one's you can see very clearly. And they stab you just like a hypodermic needle. You know you've found this plant because you'll feel a sudden jabbing pain in your arm like someone stabbed you and for two or three days you'll be numb and itchy. From a hunter's perspective, these are horrible trees because you're walking around, you don't want to stumble in and get stuck in a grove of them. They have killed people in the past. Uh, People have had allergic reactions and heart attacks from being really severely stung. Um, But then what's cool about them is these are also where our native admiral butterflies live and where they breed and lay their eggs and what they feed on. So... um, Again, this fierce species, it's Latin name, Urtica ferox, the ferocious nettle, but then inside it, some of our most fragile and beautiful species. Our next guest works with another beautiful species, the magnificent kōru. Hannah Harris hails from the stunning Northland region. 
In episode 22, she shares kōrero about her connection to native species and ecosystems through her whakapapa and her role as kaitiaki kōri. Here she is, talking about how we can help protect kōri from the notorious pathogen threatening our forests. So, Hannah, just listening to you, it, it makes me so frustrated that we've treated kōri so badly. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of the same. I feel a bit frustrated, um, but yeah, I, I'm never hopeless I've always got hope that things will get better or you know that people are going to be starting to get more aware or that the forest is always going to be there in some capacity you know we've put Cody through a lot but you know it's actually these these whole forests that have been put through you know I mean plowed you know logging roads chucked through and it wasn't just Cody that was being logged it was you know Rimu and and um Tortara you know all these other trees that were getting getting logged but imagine a a forest without Cody I just I couldn't I couldn't imagine that and so um and I guess Cody in order for Cody to survive we need to look after the forest as a whole because they all hold each other up you know underneath all the roots that you know they're connected and so Mm. I guess the forest as a whole we need to look after and and I guess yes we need to look after Cody and we need to stop the spread of Cody dieback but we also need to think about the forest as a whole and you know talking about pigs and possums and and goats and rats and cats and all that um but yeah I guess to save one species you have to think about the whole forest so what what do people need to remember if they're going into the forest in the north I guess that key message arrive clean leave clean um that's the main one stick to the tracks stick to open tracks you know these tracks have been upgraded for a reason um yeah, don't go off the track as, as tempting as it is to go and hug the Cody tree. If you can't reach it from the track, just don't go near it. Um, clean your gear, especially if you're going from forest to forest, and spread the message, not the disease. Oh, I That's like a good that one, one. Eh? It's a good one. That's a, is it yours? Is it real? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, did I hear that from We should make maybe? it real. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and what's um, one thing that you wish everyone listening would tell their friends? I would just say that, you know, there's this disease called Cody dieback and it attacks Cody trees and it's really simple to clean your gear and make sure that you clean them before you go into any Cody lands or any Cody forests. Some great advice there from Hannah if you happen to be out exploring our amazing Cody forests this summer. Next, we've got Ranger Chris Dodd, or Doddy as we all affectionately call him, on what it's like to track and monitor rare kiwi in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Doddy joined us for episode 24, but also features in the Fiordland Kiwi Diaries mini-series on the Doc YouTube channel, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. I asked him to give our listeners a taste of what being up close with a tokoweka is really like. I think the first thing that always strikes me when you when I've got one in hand is the is the are the legs. Um they really do look like dinosaur legs. Um they're they're really scaly, they're huge, uh big claws on the end of their on the end of their toes as well. And um the first thing I really noticed with these, the the tokoweka compared with the northern birds, is that they're so They've got so much down, so they actually feel really soft and so much feather. They, they obviously need it down here with the, the cold weather. Uh, so I'm just, yeah, just how fluffy they are just still <laughs> surprises me. Um, 
and as as you go up, yeah, the um, again the, the they're quite big birds down here. The the females will be up to getting on for about uh, 2.83 kg. So they're, they're big birds. They've got big, uh, long bills, kind of a good 120 mil or so. So just, yeah, they, they just look like nothing else. <laughs> no other bird that, uh, that's around me. That's so cool. And does their size make them less speedy? Are they clumsy? Um, a little bit of both. They can move with incredible speed, uh, <laughs> when they, when they want to be. But they are also incredibly clumsy, uh, especially the chicks. I've seen a couple of uh, nests. I've got a couple of nest recordings this year where where they've just the chicks have just been pottering around in front of the, the nest camera, and then suddenly they just trip up and fall over and roll down <laughs> a hill, and they've gone. Um, I've even seen an adult bird just kind of look up into the air and fall on its back and roll over, and then kind of quickly get up and, and run away. Um, so yeah, they are in a very clumsy bird. Oh my gosh. And and um are the feathers you say there are so many feathers, are they given to Iwi, those feathers? Yeah, yeah, they certainly are. We uh, we keep hold of them here at uh, at the dock office for them if uh, if they're ever requested. Okay. Yeah. And what does uh, a tokoweka what does it smell like? You know, they say kakapo are like uh honey and kind of tree-ish. What's a tokoweka like? I'm gonna I'm gonna use the easy answer and say they smell quite musty, which which every bird kind of you end up saying um, smells quite musty. Um, but it's it's a really strong smell. Yeah, their poo is quite a strong smell of ammonia, really strong. Uh, so once you've got your nose in, you can kind of pick them up in if you're just walking along the track and there's been one go past in the past ten minutes, quarter of an hour. You really get a waft. Um, you kind of see why they're so um prone to being being caught by dogs or or, or stoats or ferrets um if they smell that much if i can smell them that easily then a dog's going to pick them up from from miles away dock rangers have an above average amount of poo stories which brings me to our next guest andrew lego who has the unfortunate moniker of the office cat scat guy not a title he ever sought out Andrew works with Aotearoa's rarest parakeet, the kakariki karaka, or orange-fronted parakeet. He joined us for episode 15, talking about his work to monitor and track this species, control predators in critical areas, and boost numbers with captive breeding. Here he is telling us about his weirdest day at work. So you get to do things like tree climbing, bird banding, all these things that look like the best day at work. What's your weirdest day at work been? Yeah, I can't think of a specific day that I'd consider particularly weird, but um, occasionally uh, we do have the field team sort of come in and bring little packages back to me. Um, sometimes these involve things like dead birds or rotten eggs or um, cat scat. So essentially dealing with that is, is a little bit weird, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And um, it's probably my own fault because, you know, <laughs> I was sort of requesting some of these things, but having sort of a pile of cat scat by my desk isn't that great uh, in the office. I just want to see the email we get. Does anyone have some cat scat I'm desperately looking for? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was trying to get people um, interested in actually looking at the cat scat because I think we can actually pick out some really interesting patterns of cat distribution, mm-hmm. um, possibly looking at genetics. So if you've got cats in different areas, you can work out whether it's the same one or not. And you can also actually work out what cats are eating at various times of the year. So um, unfortunately, no, I didn't come across any takers. Um, that shocked but, me. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it would have been great to actually um, 
get that study underway because the sad thing is we've had scat come in where it's um, apparent that orange-fronted parakeets have been um, part of that cat's diet. No. Yeah. What's been your most memorable moment in your line of work? I mean, I think in this job I get to do quite a lot of interesting things. Um, I've got memories of like, flying over Fjordland and seeing like the landscape there with waterfalls and you know wild forests and hidden valleys and that. But um, also, you know, tree climbing is a great experience. You're, you're up in the canopy and you can sort of just look out over these valleys, and it's pretty amazing to be able to do that as part of your work. Um, but I guess if I think back to sort of when I first started, um, I have a pretty good memory of the first nest that I found. Um, and that was actually during the first week when I started with Doc. Uh, so it was pretty amazing to be able to to locate a nest of a you know, critically endangered species. And during that year, actually, I think we'd, we'd only found two up to that point. Um, and, yeah, so I remember sort of trying to track this bird back to a nest and essentially it just flew into a tree and disappeared and I wasn't actually sure what was going on but um, I was patient with it and I had to actually come back the next day and track it down again and sure enough I noticed that there was a bird flying in and it went straight into a hollow and that nest was actually a pretty important find because that pair went on to have a second nest which was um, something that we harvested or collected the eggs from and it was the very last clutch that came out of the Horden. So it was actually pretty important that we found that and we were able to get those genetics out before they disappeared forever. And you found that in your first week? Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it was a pretty cool feeling. Next up, we have Aroha Gilling, an academic specialising in te tiri tiri o waitangi and an experienced treaty ranger. She is passionate about education and her episode contains a wealth of expertise about nature and being a good treaty partner. Aroha talks about how our conservation past intersects with both our present and our future and how our treaty commitments need to be at the heart of this. She also happens to be a super fan of all creatures great and small in the Rangatahi Molesworth Recreation Reserve. That is her happy place and here is what she had to say about it. It is a place I'm incredibly fond of. My uh, One of our, my colleagues in Nelson, after I first went there, looked at me and said, oh, look, you're falling in love. And he was absolutely right. Mm. I have most definitely felt fallen in love with Rangitahi Molesworth. Um, actually, a favourite memory was a Christmas time memory from this year. And it's just one of those, once again, it's one of those moments of wonder. I was just driving back from doing something up at Sedgemere, which is one part of the reserve, and we came across these three men halfway up a scree slope and they had a camera. I thought, oh, I bet that's interesting. Let's stop and find out. (laughs) So we pulled up and wound the window down and called one over. He looked slightly panicked. I was like, you look like you're doing something interesting there. What's going on? And what they were doing was that they were photographing something called a pen wiper. And a pen wiper is this amazing fleshy kind of, I think they call it a fleshy herb. It looks like it should be part of the succulent family, um, but it's not really. Um, It's one of those incredible plants that you only get to see every two to three years. It lives on scree slopes and... um, the botanists, I think, call it a transient plant because it's it's not always in the same place. 
Um, they take quite a long time to mature, which could be the reason you only see them every two or three years. And they have a really distinctive, highly fragrant flower. But the best bit is why they're called a pen wiper. So they were named after the um, strange contraptions that Victorian England made to wipe their quill pens on, which was essentially a bunch of rags tied around a stick. So if you can imagine a big bunch of rags wound around a stick, then you've got the basic shape of a pen wiper. <laughs> One of my favourite conservation questions to ask is, what's a species that you really love? Oh, one species. Couldn't possibly pick one, Erica. <laughs> I'm gonna, well, I, let's see. Actually, my story about the species that I really care about, or two of them anyway, starts back at Onitahua Marae in Golden Bay. So there's uh, the whare there, Te Ao Marama, the, um, the house was, was the decoration of it was overseen by Robin Slow, who's a wonderful local artist and part of the marae whānau. And some of the images that he depicted there really got me curious. So one of the images that occurs in some of the panels are something known as the Clifton spiders. Basically, it's an albino spider that's blind and the size of a dinner plate. I've always wanted to see one. I really have. I've spent a lot of time clambering around looking for them, and I've only ever seen their spider webs. Um, so they have to go on my list. And another one that I saw for the first time illustrated on the walls of Te Ao Marama uh, was the Poella Fantas snail. Now, I have actually seen them. And I just think they're the most beautiful things with those burnished brown shells. And I'd have to admit that I quite like the notion that they're carnivorous and that they eat, eat worms by sucking them up a bit like we eat pasta. <laughs> Of course, I've got a bird on my list as well. Go on, then. <laughs> um, it's the Tarapirohi, or the black-fronted tern. Oh. And um, I got to know them on Rangitahi Molesworth, or the Molesworth Recreation Reserve. Okay. And I think what appeals to me most about them is um, it's actually the way they look. It's a very shallow reason. <laughs> but they've got these little black skull caps that remind me of World War I flying caps. <laughs> um, and so that's how I use, that's the kind of marker I use to identify them. So they're the one bird that I'm absolutely, definitely sure I've got right. So I look for the little grey feathers and the little black skull cap. <laughs> Next up, marine biologist Laura Boren dives into her favourite topic, seals, and shares some on-the-job stories about this mischievous species. Laura was on the front line saving marine species in the wake of the Rena oil spill. She has recently been working to develop pup shelters, and she's extremely passionate about responsible dog ownership in areas with marine wildlife. Here she is in episode 23 when we asked her to give us her best seal fact. With fur seals and, and sea lions as well, they've got a really interesting um, uh, lactation and gestation period. So when, um, when a female comes ashore and gives birth, she has her pup and about a week later, she actually remates um, with a male holding the territory. Um, and then she'll start to alternate between going to sea to... Um, feed and coming back on shore to nurse her pup. 
The interesting thing is that the egg doesn't implant straight away. Um, it stays in stasis. And then about three months later, it will actually implant and, um, and her new fetus will start um, developing. So their um, gestation period is similar to humans, nine months, even though um, she's remated a week after um, or a week to 10 days after giving birth to the last pup. But what makes it really amazing is the fact that um, as she's going through this, and because the lactation length is approximately 10 months, that means that for most of that year, she's eating for three. She's having to eat to keep herself um, fit enough and also to feed her pup on shore and her growing fetus. So they're pretty impressive females. Wow. And she kind of almost hits pause on her pregnancy. That is amazing. And that also is why, um, you know, the, the energy involved in lactation um, is, is so intense. That's why that it's really rare um, that you'll see a female um, letting another um, pup suckle. This is a difference between fur seals and sea lions. Um, sea lions will let other pups um, suckle, but a fur seal, no. They, they will um, definitely chase away a pup that is not theirs. Pups will definitely try it on. It's what we call milk stealing. And if, they're, um, if a pup's mother is out at sea um, feeding, you might see them wandering through the colony trying to look for a, a sleeping female that they can sneak up and steal some milk from. And sometimes they're successful, but if they wake that female up, they're going to get chased away. That is brilliant. I always recommend if you're watching, you know, we have lots of fur seal breeding colonies that have really good lookouts and you can just stand um, from up above and watch them. And if you watch for some of these behaviors and just see what a pup is doing going through the colony, you can see some pretty interesting stuff. And now I know what to look for as well. So I'll be yeah. like, I know why he's being chased away, milk stealer. Sneaky. <laughs> This next clip is for all the bird nerds out there. There is no shame in being bird nerds, we are right there next to you. Ecologist Michelle Bradshaw has the kind of work stories that will make you green with envy. Michelle is in charge of the National Banding Scheme in Aotearoa and brings hands-on banding experience from bird colonies all around the world. In episode 21, she discusses what we can learn about the data that we get from banded birds and shares some cautionary tales about on-the-fly identification. Here she is talking about what we've learnt from banding the bar-tailed godwit, or kuaka. Um, so a lot of what we know now about birds were actually first figured out through bird banding. So the bar-tailed godwit, or kuaka, they don't like winters. So they spend the summer here in New Zealand. And then when winter approaches, they fly via China to Alaska. And they go and breed there in the Northern Hemisphere summer. And then after breeding, they fly 11,000 kilometers nonstop directly back to New Zealand. They can't land on water. They can't sleep while flying. Eight days nonstop, 11,000 kilometers. When they get here, they promptly fall asleep. And this was first worked out by researchers in Alaska watching banded birds depart 
And this was before the days of, you know, WhatsApp, etc. But they probably would have sent a message to the researchers here in New Zealand saying, this bird is just left now. And then they start the countdown. And w- then you have the uh, wader researchers in New Zealand watching when they arrive here. And they can say that exact bird, there was a particular godwit with a flag E7 that had done some amazing trips. And when they arrive here, then they can tell their counterparts in Alaska, yes, yes, this bird has arrived. And and they still do that, both the birds as well as the bird watchers. That's amazing. How, how do they stay alive during that trip so they can't land on water? Do they just, they obviously eat enough and then go on their they way? They need to fatten up prior to um, their long migration. And they even take into account the weather, the atmospheric conditions, the wind directions, etc. We now have birds with satellite transmitters on and we can look a lot more finely at their decisions and how they're impacted by all of these um, massive weather events or deciding to delay their departures. There's some birds that they have found depart New Zealand from exactly the same spot on the same day each year. Uncanny like clockwork. And and we, we call them bird brains. It is unbelievable. But the first knowledge of this was actually thanks to bird banding that we knew um, that they actually fly directly, they don't stop anywhere. And uh, it's just, it, it's amazing what we can learn about these birds. It is amazing. How do you decide which birds you're going to band? Well, you know, they line up and they volunteer. They say, band me, band me. <laughs> no, not actually. As I said, there has to be a purpose, a very good reason before you mark a bird. That bird is going to wear that band forever. So you need to find out what data What data do you need to answer the questions you're trying to answer and how many birds actually need to be marked in order to do that? And so in order to obtain enough information, for instance, on longevity, you need to actually mark an inordinate number of birds in order to get enough data over time. And it might be hard to predict beforehand whether 10 birds are enough or 50, or maybe you need to mark 50,000 birds to get the data you want. The main thing is to ensure that the purpose of marking is such that that bird is not wearing that mark for no purpose. Next up, we've got an oldie but a goodie. Back in 2021, Brent Bevan told us everything we needed to know about Predator Free 2050. In fact, he told us so much that we needed two episodes to cover it all. Brent is an expert on predator control and has decades of hands-on field experience. He has herded sea lions, he's been hounded by kiwi, and he's caught mohua in his socks. Here he is in episode 13, explaining exactly how that situation panned out. I was out on Breaksea Island um, catching mohua for a transfer to Whanuaho uh, a few years ago, which was um, quite a cool job. Breaksea was the was one of the f- it was the first island they made predator free in New Zealand. Um, the first big island they did Mariah Island, which is a small one, but this was the first structured 
baited, um, ground baited approach to doing it. And it's really steep. It's quite an amazing island in Fiordland. And the wildlife on it is phenomenal. So we can, we can go in and, and actually catch some of the birds and take them off to repopulate other spots. There's so many. So I was catching a mohua or yellowhead on the island and when we'd struggled for days. And it was, I, I was on top of the island. We'd only had 15 birds and the helicopter was coming and you normally want 30 to 50 to try to start a population. Uh, and we and I was on the top of the island and with 15 minutes to go till we called it quits and the helicopter arrived, I caught 30 mohua in one go. So they were in the net and they were everywhere. So I, the only problem was I didn't expect that and there was only me and <laughs> I um, and I didn't have enough catch bags. So I, I I filled up all my catch bags. So we put the birds into little bags that protect them, and that way we can transport them and carry them down to, to then put them in a box to move them to another island. So I was um, so I took my socks off and I stuffed some boho in my socks, and I um, tied my sleeves up on my raincoat and put boho in the raincoat, and every off every little pocket and everything I could do I had filled with moa and then I had to line them in my pack and tie them around the pack and hold them because you can't hold 30 catch bags by yourself so I had everything lined up and then I and the radio wasn't working because the island's so steep you couldn't connect across it so so the helicopter had come in by this point and they were all down there and I'm desperately stuffing all these birds with bags and folding could, the net up they not help shooing you? other birds away go away <laughs> And I got them all stuffed in, and then I had to go down. It's a very steep track. It's like forty-five degrees of th- these thirty birds and pockets and backs and socks and. Don't fall And over. I got I got down the the bottom. Just got the radio connection in time to make them hold, and they and they held the chopper. Mm-hmm. We got them all out, banded them, put them in the boxes, and you know it's about 30, 40 minutes later than anticipated. But then we got them all away, the and we had a good population. And they successfully. <laughs> Started a new population? We successfully started a new population on Fanuahu. So Fanuahu or Codfish Islands where all the kākāpō are. Mm-hmm. Another, another site. We, you know, you get rid of predators, you can have kākāpō and more mm. wildlife. And harder to like stuff that. in your jacket. Yeah, they are a bit harder to stuff in your jacket, but I'd give it a go. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure people are. Is there a single most important takeaway that you want people to understand about predator-free? Yes. <laughs> predator Predator-free 2050 or removing these predators is is our responsibility and our responsibility for our kids. These are we live in this country, and and the only way to save our wildlife, the things that make us unique and make us who we are as New Zealanders, you know, our kiwi, our fio, all those those birds we see every day on banknotes and that, but not in the wild. The only way to look after them is to remove these predators. And I think it's our responsibility as a nation to make sure we protect what was here before us. On top of that, we can do it. Like, we can do it. It's it's mapped, it's ready. If we all buy into it and we all take our own actions towards it and we act like a team of five million, mm-hmm. then we will, we will knock this one off. And um, it will be one of the greatest things we ever look back on in our history and say... Gosh, what an amazing event we did as a as a group of people, and and I, it'll be a day where I'll be able to sit with my kids and feel very proud of what we did as a nation. And now, you may know him as the star of the Fieldland Kiwi Diaries. We had one Tim Raymakers on the show for episode twenty five. Tim is a highly experienced conservationist who, for many years, has been charged with monitoring Southern Fiordland Tokuweka Kiwi in Shy Lake Fiordland. 
He monitored kiwi in that area when there wasn't any predator control and then continued monitoring after aerial predator control to determine the effects. You really should watch the Fieldland Kiwi Diaries mini-series on our YouTube if you haven't already. In addition, Tim has also seen species like robin, totowai, kakapo and kiwi get up to some truly incredible things. Listen for yourself. There's lots of times that I've been sitting on a mountaintop um, having a cup of tea and looking around and thinking, wow, I can't believe that I get to do this. This is wonderful. Um, I think one time that really stood out to me was when I was... I was volunteering, actually. Um, I had had my first paid contract with Doc at that point, but I did a couple of weeks volunteering with the Kakapo Recovery Program on Whenua Hall down off Rakiura. Uh, and my job was to hang out near a Kakapo nest at night and basically make sure that everything sort of went to plan and that Chick was staying healthy and getting fed as it should. And I was uh, had to go down to the nest when the mother was away so that I wouldn't be disturbing her. But um, at one point, as I was sort of retreating, she kind of beat me to the punch and came back a little bit. And so I just sort of stood back and stood still and got my first ever view of a kakapo, which was just a pretty priceless moment. You know, this incredibly kind of vivid green and and just so different. And, it, you know, just very quiet, just creeping along. It was a very kind of, well, it felt like a very intimate moment to me. And yeah, I was just... That was just like, oh, I'm living the dream here, you know. That's, that's kind of where I wanted to be, and here I am doing it. Wow. Wow, and such a humbling moment, I imagine, just going, that's the thing we're, we're saving. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, that's any right. any particular memorable moments in the field um, other than that, perhaps to do with Kiwi? Yeah, there's a, there's a, a couple that stick out. Um, there was one situation that I had at Shire Lake, which was quite unexpected and a little bit strange where I was tracking this chick. Our job there is to find out what happens to chicks. Do they survive? Do they not? So they've got a little radio transmitter on and I was tracking this chick and I, I found it in a place that I didn't really expect to find it outside of its its home territory. Uh, but as I was tracking it, I was getting a bit of interference on the little receiver that we use. And I thought, I think there's another bird around here somewhere. Um, and when I actually found it, I was pleased to see that it was safe and sound in a little hole under a log. But in there, there was some adults, but they weren't the parents of this kiwi. Um, and it's actually quite a sad story. So these adults had had a chick of their own that had been killed by a stoat. And this little chick had obviously gone wandering off and sort of been, I don't know, adopted slash kidnapped by these adults who obviously had a real strong drive to be parenting something and I found this thing and started parenting it um so it was a situation that was probably I would speculate a bit unnatural but just something I just never considered might happen with kiwi you know it's something that can happen with other species but kiwi are really territorial and just those little insights into the the tiny little things that go on in their world that you wouldn't normally know about oh that's pretty special so in the course of your conservation career, there must have been a million different great places that you have worked in. What's the coolest place you've worked in? And can you tell me about why? Yeah, sure. There's um, there's a lot of parts of Fjordland, which I just absolutely love. And the scenery's incredible. And Shire Lake's probably top of that tree. But for really the coolest place that I feel like I've worked in would be several pest-free islands that I worked on with the Kakapo program, Fenuaho, Anchor Island, and a couple of visits up to Hoturu in the Hauraki Gulf. And all of those places, 
are just absolutely buzzing with life. They're all long-term pest-free islands and there's birds everywhere and there's other life, there's sea life, and they're just so vibrant. And I also, you know, I lived there. We were there for four weeks at a time and then we'd have two weeks off and that was kind of my home for years. And you just really get to know that island and that environment and connect with it and sort of grow with it a little bit. But for me... Those pest-free islands, it's something that I wish every New Zealander could experience because it's a vision of what we're trying to achieve, what we once had everywhere across Aotearoa, and what it could be like again. And yeah, I think it's just, you know, people come to those islands and I've lost count of the number of people that have been with on those islands who've really considered it a landmark experience in their life to get to go there and experience that. And yeah, that's what we're working towards. Thanks for joining us on this whirlwind tour of past episodes of the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is hosted by me, Erica Wilkinson, and edited and teched by Lucy Hollyoke. This cut was put together by Laura Honey, and we are produced and directed by Jane Ramage. The Doc Sounds of Science podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts, so subscribe now and never miss an episode. Have a great summer. Kia ora.